And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Before I get started today, I would like to spend just a couple of minutes talking about some, for me, exciting future events. Next week, I'll be back in the saddle with Chris and Daryl, and we try to get together at least once a month to answer your questions. Uh, we've got a, um, a handful of them and, and excited to share uh, that discussion with you. Uh, and the second thing, which I'm, I'm, I'm really very excited about because I've not mentioned it, I don't think, but this year is our 10th anniversary. And as I was thinking about what I'm going to be speaking about on the 17th of September, which is a Bogleheads uh, presentation, I've got about 60 minutes to present and 30 minutes of Q&A. Uh, and everybody, as I understand it, is is welcome. And we'll have the, uh, in the notes to this podcast, uh, we'll have that uh, uh, access to that Zoom presentation. It looks like you don't have to sign up. You just need to arrive, and uh, but we'll give you that code. But as I was thinking about the topics I might cover, I, I have to spend at least a few minutes going over the $12 million decisions. And when I say a few minutes, I'm hoping with the Bogleheads and certainly with you as a group uh, that, that 10 to 15 minutes uh, at the most uh, doing and talking about those major decisions. And for people, when they hear those, if they aren't familiar with them, it'll take them a few minutes to read the free book that you all know how to get a hold of. That's at paulmerriman.com slash sign up. All one word, sign up. But to finish the last 45 to 50 minutes of that presentation, I've decided to do something because as I was putting that idea together, what to talk about, uh, I thought, well, you know, I've got to do something that that, uh, recognizes this is our uh, 10th anniversary. So it's going to be a warm-up for me. Uh, I will do, or we will do, a special anniversary podcast and video uh, probably later in the year. But I, I thought I would just sit down and say, what would I, what would I include if I made a list of the 10 best lessons from the last 10 years? What is it that we have shared with uh, our followers, our listeners, our readers, our viewers, that would be somewhat unique to to the to the work that it would be something you probably didn't hear from somebody else first. So I've got to come up with ten. I've got to start on the list, and and uh, uh, it, it's going to be great fun for me. And I hope it hope you find it of of interest. And I hope. If it is something really uh, educational that you will pass that recording on, it will be a video as well as a podcast. But I think it's going to work best as a video. So once again, that is on the 17th Eastern Time, 12 o'clock noon. And uh, again, in the notes, check the notes for uh, for that link to the uh, Zoom get-together. So now I want to talk about about some of the emails I've been receiving. 
every once in a while, I will get an email that while I make it very clear that I do not give personal advice, uh, that is, uh, uh, th- that's for an investment advisor. That's for somebody who's going to spend the time to really uh, find out who you are as an investor, what your needs are, what your risk tolerance are, it might be, what your tax situation is, uh, um, a whole bunch of things that I'm just not allowed to get into. But when I get an email... Uh, and I'm only going to share a, a part of it, uh, but when I get an email that the number one item on it is this, uh, is it too late to reduce your equity exposure now if you can't sleep at night? Are you just locking in losses even as the market continues to slide? Supposedly, we are heading for a deep recession. So it goes on with more information, but the bottom line is I'm feeling I'm feeling concerned about this investor, and as I suspected, the investor, when I did in fact uh, give her a call, uh, is uh, uh, in retirement, uh, semi-retirement. Uh, she uh, she does feel like she has to continue working, and and while she would not, this is interesting. She wanted my advice, but she didn't want to really give me the numbers. She didn't. It's a, it's a sense I think of trust, and and interestingly enough, I'm not surprised at that when I talked with her and realized how many people have taken advantage of her. And the reason they've taken advantage of her, I believe, after having spoken with her for probably thirty minutes, is that she is an emotionally highly charged investor. I don't know what she's like in the rest of her life, but boy, does she have highs and lows and memories and fears uh, that, that she has, as so many of us actually have, that bag lady concern. I am afraid I'm going to end up uh, as a bag lady. But it was interesting uh, in the discussion, and it, and when I looked around to say, well, what is where is she getting all of this really negative stuff that's supposed to be happening? And then I come across a recent article about Harry Dent, and now, Harry Dent is a guy who's been uh, predicting either something amazing or something terrible is about to happen over the next, uh, let's say, decade, and he's made a now, when I say he's made a fortune, I don't know how much he's made, but she, he's had some very, very uh, popular books, bestsellers. And, and, uh, and when you go back and you track, and others have, uh, I have not made, uh, spent a lot of time doing it, but a lot of other people have. They have tracked his recommendations. I mean, he, he talked about the, the great crash uh, coming in 2009, after the, the the decline in the market in 2007 and 8, in the very early part of 2009, he was predicting terrible, terrible outcomes in the coming years. And of course, that was was followed uh, uh, not by terrible years, but but actually very, very good years. Uh, as as a matter of fact, from the low. In March of 2009, 
when it was at about 6,500, actually closer to 6,550, uh, it it went up to almost 36,000 by the end of 2021. And yet, in 2008, the title of his book was The Great Depression Ahead. And if you believe that, you missed one of the great runs in stock market history. Uh, he, He also predicted at the beginning of the 2000. The book came out, The Roaring 2000s. This was supposed to be this amazing period for stocks. And yet, starting as of 1231.99, when the market was 11,497, by the end of that decade, it was, was 10,428. So in, instead of a roaring period of time, uh, it was... Uh, a snoring period of time to being down. So, in fact, it was called the lost decade because uh, over that 10-year period, it turned out to be a negative 1% a year compound rate of return. But you don't have to look much further. You You could look at the statements from Jeremy Grantham, who is calling for a huge crash, I mean, a gigantic crash, He says the current super bubble features an unprecedentedly dangerous mix of cross-asset over-evaluation with bonds, housing, and stocks all critically overpriced and now rapidly losing momentum. And the commodity shock and the, the the Fed's hawkishness. Each cycle is different and unique, but every historical parallel suggests that the worst is yet to come. And it's not my job to paint a pretty picture or an ugly picture because if you paint that, you can turn somebody who has made a commitment to buy and hold into a a market timer at exactly the wrong time. You could also do the opposite. You could say really great things about the market, just as Harry Dent did in 2000. And you might encourage people to become way overcommitted to equities because it looked so apparent that it was going to be a huge return. But to get back to this lady and her predicament, my first question was whether or not when she made the commitment, and I believe she's about 50-50 stocks and bonds, when she made that commitment to stocks and bonds, Did she understand the amount of risk that she was going to be taking? And of course, the way we do our best to show that is with the fine-tuning your asset allocation tables. As most of you know, we have taken every one of the nine equity strategies that you could use bonds with to build a portfolio. We've taken all nine of those equity strategies from 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 the four fund U.S., the four fund international, the combination of S and P 500 and small cap value, the ten fund ultimate buy and hold strategy. We've taken every one of those and built a fine tuning table to show you the implications from 10 percent equity, 90 percent fixed income all the way up to 100% equities, so that in every case, 
not only can you see what the return would have been over the last 52 years through the end of last year, but you would also see what the worst periods were like. So that if you were going to be upfront with the risk you're taking, you'd say, aha, I see that a 50-50 strategy had a point that it was down uh, in one year by about 25%, which would suggest to me that is at, at least maybe on the outside edges of the risk that you're taking with a 50-50, but, but, but at least in the ballpark. And what we know is that if we look at the recommended ETFs that, that, that Chris Pedersen put into his, his best-in-class ETFs, that the four U.S. asset classes, large blend, large value, small blend, small value, those four ETFs through the end of August uh, had a, about a, a 10% decline. Now, if you were 50-50, because bonds also went down for the first eight months of the year, you would have had a decline of about 8%. So this is really, for somebody who knows the the risk exposure they have with a 50-50 strategy, uh, this is not a point at which a person would say this is way beyond my risk tolerance. What it's really about is the sense or the belief or the fear that everything is just going to go to pot and a person could lose everything or a person could lose half of their money or the person could lose something, that the, a story they're going to make up in their head that's got evidently this lady losing sleep. And I really do uh, have a great sense of empathy, sympathy, concern for this person because these kinds of gyrations in the market, they are just business as usual. They just happen to be the kind of business that nobody likes going through. We would like the, our investments to go up all the time. But of course, that isn't the way that it works. And the problem is, is that I feel like this person is not going to trust but a couple of folks, and so far the couple of folks that she's been willing to trust have been really good or bad salespeople who made her believe things that really were not realistic. And so we are trying to help do-it-yourself investors, but if we can't get you to take a look at those numbers, and if you can't manage yourself, communicate with yourself about where you belong on that page in that fine-tuning table, I don't know that we're going to be much good. I did mention to the lady, I asked her, how would you feel if you had, when you retired, if you had a pension? Oh, yeah, she'd love a pension, something she could count on every month. 
And then when I brought up the idea, well, you can buy a pension. You can do exactly or close to what the company would have done if they had, in fact, underwritten a pension for you. They would likely have done that through some insurance company. And response to that is, well, then I don't trust the insurance companies. And I will tell you, from having been around the investment advisory industry for a long time, boy, when you come in to work with somebody who's trying to help you, and of course, it is difficult. You've got to be able to, to tell the difference between people who are trying to help you and people who are trying to have you help them with, with them getting along and meeting their needs. Now, if you find somebody who is trustworthy, if you treat them like you don't trust them, you're going to find it very difficult uh, for them to do their work. Uh, they really want to, I'm talking about all advisors, whether it's the bad ones or the good ones, they all want you to trust them. And by the way, you also have to trust them in being willing to tell all. Because if what you feed to that advisor is simply a sales pitch of how you would like life to be without the realities of, of the emotions that you feel about loss, for example, you're not going to get good advice. So uh, sometimes I think people like this who are going to be up and down would be better off if they would just put their money in a single premium life annuity Obviously a good one, but, but to be in something that will feed them a monthly income uh, for the rest of their life. And, and by the way, by the way, the one reason she doesn't want to do that is because she's trying to leave money to her kids at the same time as she's worried about becoming a bagged lady. I mean, can, can you feel the tug of war inside that lady's mind? Well, let's talk about another tug of war. I just a minute ago talked about the returns of the ETFs that Chris Pedersen had selected and how they had done uh, for the first uh, eight months of the year. And one of the things I'm trying to help you decide, if you haven't decided, is what you are going to trust. Are you going to trust mutual funds or ETFs? And there are a lot of advantages to ETFs, particularly, particularly if you're a true buy and holder and you're not trying to trade the market and make a quick buck. Because you don't care about the day-to-day -day little things that happen to the pricing on e ETFs. You, you just care to, to have them represent their value when it is time for you to cash out. But if you are going to be an ETF investor, you have an interesting fork in the road, and that is, uh, should I be in the, in the Vanguard ETFs or should I use the best in class? Well, that's an interesting decision to make. I will tell you there are a lot of people who are all vanguard all the time, no matter what. Now, when I say no matter what, no matter what the difference might be between 
one fund and another, or one ETF and another. And I just want to share with you, and I've done this before, and I'm not going to take a long time to do this, but I just I do want to kind of give you another update as I look at the recommendations that Chris has made to people who want to be all vanguard. And when I look, for example, at the uh, VOO, that's the, that that is the the uh, the S and P five hundred, it was down sixteen point two percent for the first eight months. The ETF that he recommends down thirteen point six. So th- that's a big difference. When I look at the Vanguard large cap value ETF down fourteen point eight. Uh, the the one that re- that Chris recommended was down three point four. When I look at the small cap uh, blend at Vanguard down fourteen point eight, uh, Chris's recommendation uh, IJR down fourteen point seven, and finally when I look at the loss on the uh, let's see this is the. Ah, small cap value, uh, down 11.8% at Vanguard uh, and at uh, the e- in the best in class, down 6.5. Now, those are big differences. And yes, yes, if you look at the expenses uh, in, in, in some of the ETFs, maybe even all of the ETFs that, that Chris recommended, they're not expensive, but they are more expensive than Vanguard. But that's a big decision. A lot of people have this belief that whatever the asset class is, that you simply want to find the lowest cost uh, expense ratio. And while that is important to have a low uh, expense ratio, it certainly is not the only variable. And in every one of those cases... Uh, in fact, maybe when I get together with Chris and Daryl uh, this next week, I'll have Chris spend just a few minutes. I don't want to go through all 10 asset classes, but I would like him to just give us a little information on the difference between uh, the returns from the Vanguard recommendations. And by the way, I mean, we're giving you the best Vanguard recommendations uh, that we can, uh, and, and, and the good news is this, because when I talked about talking to the Boglehead groups, I've asked this question. If people believe in Vanguard, the organization, really, Vanguard, the organization, and if I can buy an ETF that is not managed by Vanguard, but Vanguard Represent, offers people the opportunity to buy those and sell those uh, uh, ETFs without a commission, just like they do their own, in a way that is, is uh, benefiting Vanguard, and it's within their, their wheelhouse, if, if, if you look at it that way, because they have not blessed these ETFs, 
but they have allowed those ETFs to be available to their clients. If they didn't believe in them, they probably shouldn't be offering them. Anyway, uh, I think this is a bigger decision than people may think. Because remember, we're always looking for that extra quarter of 1% or half of 1%. And here, this, this is a significant difference. And theoretically, we're talking about ETFs in the same asset class. Now, Chris will tell us how they're different next week. I had another, it's just a great question that I, that I want to address from a a long-time listener, Um, and his question has to do with how meaningful the returns are going back to 1928. Now, there's kind of several levels of concern that he has, and I spoke with him about this. He is concerned about how legitimate those returns were. Were, Are we looking at at something that really happened, or is this something that's just been made up, a hypothetical thing, and and really isn't relevant to people who want to know things based on the actual outcomes? Uh, And he also wants to know, how meaningful is what returns were like in 1928, 29, 30, et cetera, all the way through 2021? How meaningful are they in today's world with the, uh, the events of the day, the, the wars of today, the economic uh, ways of solving problems today? In 1928, you did not have the SEC. You, you did not have a lot of the protections that people have today. Well, I, I really, I, I think this is an important question, and it's an important level of trust that I hope people can find. Because I don't want to suggest for one second that if if we had what looked like similar set of circumstances with the economy, that it would mean that if you could find a similar set of circumstances in the past, that you would expect the market to do something similar. I I don't think that that's possible. Uh, For for one thing, uh, markets have changed considerably. In the the 20s and 30s, only about 10% of Americans had anything invested in the market. And in those days, the markets were not very liquid. In fact, even since I've been in the industry, as, as late as in the 1969, when I left the industry, you could have a market maker where they have to provide, a, where they're supposed to provide a bid and ask so uh, of, of a stock that's over the counter, not on one of the national exchanges. So when you go to that dealer and you want to buy, you're going to be at least offered a price that they will sell you the stock, or if you want to sell, a price that they will buy it from you, and then that's part of making the market. Now, what may just seem unbelievable in a way is that when I was in the business, there were times, and this is not like once in a great while, there were a lot of circumstances where I might want to, on the behalf of a shareholder, 
want to sell a hundred shares of that company. And these are public companies, companies whose whose prices were quoted daily in the local newspaper. And the bid, let's say, would be, I mean, the ask. If you wanted to buy a hundred shares, you could buy it for $12 a share. If you wanted to sell a hundred shares, the the little abbreviation was W O work out. That means I will help you sell that hundred shares if I can find a buyer. So liquidity was not good. And that would be true of a lot of the time when you look back into the 30s and 40s. Liquidity, particularly in smaller companies, would not be as good as it is today. Now, what I do believe is meaningful about those numbers, and really meaningful, is that the volatility of the past, particularly if we look not necessarily one day at a time, although that would be true too, probably, but if we go out over five or ten years, how different is the past from today? We know, for example, that that uh, the S&P 500 from 2000 to 2009, and I've mentioned this before, lost 1% a year compounded. And we also know that it lost about that same amount between 1929 and 1938. I think what we do get from all of these numbers is a better sense of what the volatility could legitimately be like. If you lived during the period of time from 1975 to 1999, where the S&P 500 over that 25-year period compounded at 17.2%, you could start believing something that may not be realistic. And from 2000 through today, that compound rate of return is a little over 7% a year. I mean, that's a huge difference from a 17% compound rate of return. I guess the question would be, is that an unusual thing to happen historically? No, it is not unusual. It's not unusual to have high returns. It's not unusual to have low returns. But I don't mean to suggest that in order to have a meltdown in the market like we have from 29 to 38, you do not have to have the same set of circumstances. It just has to do with a combination of the strength or the health of our economy. That's part of it but also whether people have a speculative bone in their body. There have been lots of periods where people do not want to pay anything extra for the returns on the companies that they're buying. They demand to buy at low prices because they don't have a sense of a great future. 
And other times, people are willing to pay an extra 5 or 10% a year over what the historical value of those kinds of corporations might be because they feel like it. That is the speculative portion of the return. And we never know, are we going to be buying and selling with a big premium built in, or are we going to be buying and selling with a big discount built in? But history has them both. And the suggestion is you got to be ready to live through both in order to have the return that you hope for. And you know that I have talked in the past about, I mean, this goes back to the 90s when we started building these kinds of tables that showed the historical returns. And we would say, take 2% off the top for the returns. In other words, if you're testing a period of time and you want to see how it would have held up in terms of either accumulating money or taking distributions, then just assume you got 2% less. One of the things I love about Craig's lifetime investment calculator that we offer on our site is you can go in and take all of those returns going back to 1970 and you can say, I want to take 1.5% off those returns and see how I do. You can crank the numbers through to make the assumption you're going to take out 4% a year, you're going to adjust for inflation or not, but you can, uh, you can adjust what you would have gotten just with the uh, you just put a little uh, amount in there and it could it could be a half a percent it could be one tenth of one percent could be five percent so those past numbers even though the news that surrounded those numbers at the time it's not the same news today were there bad politicians from time to time were there were there business people who were they were a bunch of crooks and monopolists and all i mean those things come and go they're real and were there panics panics are still a part of the process let us not forget october 19th 1987 the market is down over 22 percent in one day I will tell you, it felt like a panic. And here's the part about those old numbers that are challenging. I don't like them. When you look at that wonderful quilt chart that Daryl Balls put together, going back to 1928, tracking the S&P 500, large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value, and the combination of all four of them, the four fund strategy, you can see one year at a time how well or how poorly they did. And there are some periods that you would not want to live through again. And by the way, particularly in small cap value. Now, for the young person who might be buying into those huge losses, boy, did they get a royal return for having the ability to buy those stocks at a deep discount. And, and, but, you know, if we're retired, 
We might not feel comfortable having all of our money in small cap value if the market looked like it did in the early 1930s. So if we're going to take that information seriously, we we can't overlook the bad times and only look at the good times. So let me handle one more here. Uh, This comes uh, from a retired person, and uh, she says that I'm retired and probably won't need my 122,000 Roth IRA for the next 7 to 10 years, if even then. It was in a 40-month CD earning 3.75% and now has matured. I know it needs to be in something with more risk and more reward. Would buying only VTI, that's the total market index, give the same results as the four fund for life? And uh, to begin with, the total market index has almost the same return as the S&P 500 over the last 90 plus years. Some five-year periods, it's better the total market index is, and sometimes it's worse. But compounded, it's the difference is one-tenth of one percent since 1928 in favor of the S&P 500. So I say that because while we don't show the total market index, we show the S&P 500 both going back to 1970 in our fine-tuning tables and uh, going back to uh, 1928 in the quilt charts. So here's my answer about the results. We have looked at the last 52 years. There is about a 2% advantage. Oh, by the way, we've looked at the four fund results going back to 1928 as well. There is about a 2% a year advantage for the four funds over the total market index or the S&P 500. Now, that that was not a, a gift. That was because... The four fund strategy is half in small companies. Half of that half is in blend. Half of that half is in value. And blend is growth and value. So more than half of the small cap is in small cap value stocks. The other half is in large companies. Half of that is basically the S&P 500, and the other half is large cap value. The S&P 500 is partly growth, mostly growth, and partly value. So there is a slight overweighting to the value asset class in those large ETF funds as well. Now, Would that be true for the next 7 to 10 years? You know, I don't know. I don't even know whether over the next 7 to 10 years that the stock market will make any money. There are certainly people predicting the big bear is coming. 
one of the biggest crashes ever. You can read it. It's there if you want to read it. And then, of course, you got to figure out whether then to circular file it or, or, or sell everything. But what is interesting to me is I have other emails from this same person. And this person is super conservative, very happy with her CDs and her MYGAs that are paying her 4.2% for five years through American National Life. And she even asked the question in this particular email that I've referred to here, should I dollar cost average this Roth money or buy all at once? So she's not feeling overly confident, but she is talking about putting a sizable amount of money in an all-equity portfolio that was previously in a 40-month CD. By the way, a 40-month CD earning 3.75 was pretty good, right? I think, I'm only guessing, She's investing this, in essence, for somebody else. She says she doesn't think she's ever going to need this money. So she may likely be investing this money, this Roth IRA, for her children. And the all-equity portfolio maybe would be the appropriate thing for her children. Uh, The decision-making process, stocks, bonds, buy it now, dollar cost average, How many possible emotions could there be in those decisions? And I'm going to finish this podcast with a request for some help. I am very excited about celebrating the 10 years of work that we have done. And, uh, you know, the last five with with, with Daryl and Chris and, and now Craig, I mean, we are... We are set, I think, to do a a lot of good work uh, in the future. But I'd like you, as I'm putting together my list for this uh, Boglehead presentation about the things that, uh, that the the 10 things that were really meaningful that came out of our our teachings, uh, I would love it if, if you think back and you remember this concept that we taught that was a life changer for you, that somehow uh, took you from being uh, an investor with a lot of concern to an investor with greater peace of mind. What was it? What piece of information uh, allowed you to make that change? So thanks as always for listening. Share it with your friends and family. and Go to, to iTunes and give us a Uh, some sort of a comment. We would love it uh, because uh, those things mean a lot to other people. I just looked. I just looked at the reviews for Word Talk in Millions, the written reviews, uh, not the people who just click one, two, three, four, or five, but the people who actually took the time to write reviews. And uh, there were 102 Reviews. Three of them are four stars, and every other one, 99 of them are five-star reviews. I think 
those reviews have been very helpful in getting more people to uh, to open up this book and and read it. So let me know, Paul at paulmerriman.com. I, I would uh, uh, love to hear because uh, it may be more important than some of the things I had in mind, and uh, I'd like to learn from you. Good luck to all of you, and uh, I hope you had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.